Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today we'll be taking a look at Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. This is the first part of a course called An Introduction to Literature. Part of the purpose of the course is to take a new and close look at the books that are part of the canon that has helped shape American citizens for the last 50 years or more. In today's lecture, today's lecture will be broken up into three different parts. First, there will be a brief introduction. Second, the longest section will be on the education of Montag and the different characters that play a role in helping to change him from a book-burning automaton into a thoughtful man of action. And as it so happens at Montana Classical College, we hope that our students become thoughtful men and women of action. Then in the third and final part of the lecture, we will consider what looks to be the political teaching of the book, or what we might call Ray Bradbury's blame and then praise of progressivism. In, his, in the mighty and incredible speech that he puts in the mouth of Captain Beatty, it seems as if he is offering one of the harshest and most brutal attacks on progressivism that one uh, has ever seen in a book that is so commonly read. On the other hand, there seems to be a very optimistic praise of a certain kind of progressive thinking at the very end of the book that he puts into the mouth of the book-learning uh, dissident Granger. One of the most perplexing parts of the book is trying to think through whether or not Granger ends up being a mouthpiece for Ray Bradbury or whether or not Ray Bradbury is ultimately critical of this person. But at any rate, let's turn to our first section, the introduction. Part of the purpose of this introduction to literature course is to try to understand how the books involved are generally used to shape the perception of young people. As adults, when we think back to the books that we read as children or teenagers, we don't often recall many of the details. Rather, we recall vague impressions of the books. We recall whether we were delighted or whether we were bored. We might recall a general feeling from the book or some kind of drift that our teacher tried to get across to us. When I considered my impressions of Fahrenheit 451 as a young person, I remembered something like, a totalitarian government that imposes itself on an unwilling population seeking to coerce and despotically rule over them. This is an impression that others that I've talked to share. I aim to show that this impression massively overlooks the actual causes that lead this particular government in the story to become despotic. Now, of course, my memory as a boy uh, is probably poor, or from when I was a boy is poor, but the emotional impression that anyone receives from a book or a class is extremely important. It plays a role in shaping our overall moral taste, and so potentially our character. This class, then, is an effort to provide readers, teachers, and parents with, ac <clears throat> and parents with access to a better impression, and hopefully also a truer understanding of the books involved. So with that brief preparatory mark in tow, let's take a look at the education of Montag. In this part, we will consider three different characters who play crucial roles in making possible a genuinely liberating education for Montag. Before we get to them, it is worth pointing out that Bradbury has Plato in mind when he is thinking of education. There are two crucial references in the book to the famous image of the cave from Book 7 of Plato's Republic. The first mention occurs when Montag reaches a crisis point. He's been shaken up by his latest fireman outing, which involved watching a woman, who we will talk about soon, die. 
He took a book from the house, and something that the narrator had hinted at earlier comes to light, namely that Montag has a hidden stash of books. He breaks out all of his books and tries to get his wife, Mildred, to take seriously the possibility that the world that they are living in is entirely upside down. He tells her that, quote, maybe the books can get us half out of the cave. They just might stop us from making the same damn mistakes. I don't hear those idiot bastards in your parlor talking about it. God, Millie, don't you see? An hour a day, two hours with these books, and maybe, end quote. It is striking that Montag says that the books can get us halfway out of the cave, and not all of the way out. Why is it only halfway and not more? Thankfully, we don't have to speculate, as farther down this very page, Montag finds himself wishful for some kind of teacher that might direct his studies. Why do we need teachers? For one, without a teacher, we have no idea where to start. There's an ocean, a sea of books, a sea of things to think about. A good teacher will understand the particulars of how our political community or cave has configured our souls. This teacher will see how various popular opinions distort our access to the way things are, or how they constrain our thinking and feel division. And most importantly, a good teacher will see how we get in our own way with bad habits of acting and of thinking. This teacher will put pressure on us to become better. And as we increasingly come to admire such teachers, we seek to imitate them. Some of you have been lucky enough to be in the presence of a truly first-rate teacher. Without ever encountering someone like this before or knowing what to expect, you immediately intuitively grasp that there is something important going on as soon as you're in their presence, and that your life will be impoverished if you fail to carefully attend to the conversation or lesson taking place in front of you. Undoubtedly, I'm adding in a lot here that maybe Ray Bradbury doesn't necessarily have in mind, but we can say for sure that he wished for us to think about why books aren't enough and how and why a teacher is indispensable. Let's quickly turn then to the second mention of the cave. Later in the book, when Montag is on the run from the authorities after destroying his great antagonist, Captain Beatty, with fire, a general message is sent out to citizens telling them to open their doors so they can help identify the location of Montag. Quote, he imagined thousands on thousands of faces peering into yards, into alleys, and into the sky. Faces hid by curtains, pale, night-frightened faces, like gray animals peering from electric caves. Faces with gray, colorless eyes, gray tongues, and gray thoughts, looking out through the numb flesh of the face. End quote. Here, these people get halfway out of their caves, but only physically and not mentally. Their gray drabness signifies their conformity. It may be that their electric caves mediate real life for them. So, when Bradbury imagines education, he seems to think that our mind's liberation is not automatic or in any way a given. Without great effort, and perhaps without great talent, we will find ourselves unwitting captives to opinions of our, opinions of our regime, and without any awareness that our thoughts are not really our own. And, this being the case, there is no incentive to ascend beyond them. We, were, we will return to this to some extent at the end of our uh, lecture. But with these things said, let's consider the main educators that Montag encounters throughout the story. Our first educator is Clarice. 
the most important event that prepares Montag for re-understanding the world and his place in it is his meeting with the nearly 17-year-old Clarice. She's only alive for the first 28 pages of the book, but it somehow feels like she's around for much longer than that, such as her impact on Montag and on us. Let's take a close look at their first encounter. The narrator says that Montag is walking down the street thinking little at all about nothing in particular. Something like this probably happens to all of us at some point as we trudge home tired from work. Clarice is described as almost entirely the opposite of Montag. Quote, Her face was slender and milk white, and in it was a kind of gentle hunger that touched over everything with tireless curiosity. It was a look, almost, of pale surprise. The dark eyes were so fixed to the world that no move escaped them. End quote. That she is said to have hunger indicates that she somehow feels a genuine and non-artificial need to understand the world. Insofar as that hunger touches over everything, she has not yet presupposed what the most important objects of inquiry are. Her curiosity does not tire. That would indicate that her curiosity is a long-developed habit of mind, not a one-off exercise that leaves one breathless, metaphorically speaking. Finally, she's said to almost have a look of pale surprise. In other words, she does not yet have a fixed sense or permanent sense of what the world is supposed to look like. Though she is older than a young child, she still retains a certain kind of naive wonder that conditions her perception. Clarice astonishes and bewilders Montag with her continual questions. Her startling frankness puts Montag on the defensive as he tries to close off questioning by asking Clarice if she has any respect. To have respect for something would mean to admire it or feel that it ought to be given its due. But Clarice finds herself underwhelmed by the shallow thoughtlessness and viciousness of most human beings she's encountered. She does not do the same things that other young people her age do, like watching the parlor walls, which is to say the gigantic TVs, or going to the races. Instead of being intensely and unthinkingly immersed in her time and place, and I hesitate to say culture, she has some distance from it so that she can think about it and attempt to arrive at a judgment about its goodness or badness. Naturally, this makes her a dangerous figure to those who are immersed in it and therefore committed to sustaining and protecting this thoughtless way of life. She ends their first conversation by asking Montag, if he is happy. She does not wait around for an answer. Perhaps she knows the answer, or perhaps she realizes that she has somehow overstepped her bounds. However this may be, Montag now begins to have a kind of conversation with himself. At first, he insists, I must be happy. But after seeing that his wife has attempted to commit suicide, and after meeting detached and inhumane technicians who treat her sorrowful conditions, like they would treat a spill on aisle five, Montag comes to the painful realization that he is not happy, not at all. His wife spends her time reading off of scripts, pretending to be part of a family in her own living room, where they talk about nothing at all, a true non-player character in the world, so to speak. Montag sees Clarice again, and this time she unwittingly asks Montag if he loves his wife while playing with a dandelion. 
In the first conversation, she raises the question of happiness. And in the second, she raises a question about love, one of the potentially greatest sources of human happiness. We learn as well during this conversation that Clarice is forced to go to a psychiatrist. And we learn that this, this, that this psychiatrist is not capable of comprehending why Clarice likes to go on hikes and collect butterflies. In this world, being normal is tantamount to having a mental illness. It wouldn't be that surprising, perhaps, in our own time, if something like the American Psychological Association eventually ends up issuing warnings to those who like to hike too much. But uh, we can forestall that kind of thinking for now. Let's turn to a set of strange comparisons that Montag makes about Clarice after he spends many days conversing with her and receiving various kindnesses from her. On one hand, Montag says to Clarice, quote, you make me feel very old and very much like a father, end quote. If Montag feels old, it would be because he sees Clarice as young and somehow childlike. And she is childlike in the highest and best sense of the word, insofar as she is willing to innocently say what she thinks is true and in the sense that she's incredibly open to friendship in a way that many adults lose over time. And perhaps these adults lose their openness to friendship, perhaps partially as a result of their guardedness and inability to genuinely and frankly state what they take to be the case. At any rate, on the very next page, Montag claims that Clarice, quote, sounds so old. And she replies, sometimes I'm ancient. How could Montag see her as young, almost as a daughter on one hand, and on the other, see her as old, even older than him? Her childlike innocence and frankness makes her approachable. Yet these qualities also allow her to penetrate further into the nature of existence, or to see things more clearly than others. She's not consumed by vanity or fear for her reputation. She has the emotional stability to deal well with being an outsider because she sees it as much better to seek out rare, high-quality friends than it is just to throw herself into what everyone around her is doing. Montag's admiration grows for Clarice. His encounter with a genuinely free mind shocks him into an awareness of his own ignorance. This encounter also allows him to see, for perhaps the first time, just how stultifying or suffocating his regime is with respect to both moral and intellectual virtue. She sadly dies from a car crash and is not seen again after saying goodbye on page 28. Now, much as I genuinely greatly admire Clarice and find her to be quite impressive, her great thoughtfulness is not enough to free the regime from its suffocating, suffocating dehumanization of its inhabitants. But, her speeches and generous deeds unsettle Montag so much that he will no longer find himself able to be an enforcer of his regime's degradation of man. The next educator that has a great impact on Montag's life is Mrs. Phelps. Now, she's not, I suppose you could say, what we would think of as an ordinary educator, but she performs one deed, one action that is so powerful and stunning that it really helps awaken Montag and bothers him so much uh, that it really pushes him towards changing his life in a big way. So, yeah, to put this another way, 
His next teacher, Mrs. Phelps, contributes to his education less with speeches and more with an impressive deed. Montag is called on with his fellow firefighters to burn her house and books. Ordinarily, the police escort the so-called criminals out ahead of time. Presumably, the purpose of this is to mitigate any feelings of guilt or to remove the sense that any particular individuals are harmed through the destruction of home and books. Montag notices during this episode that all of the calls for firemen always, always take place at night. This creates a spectacle for other citizens, as well as a harsh reminder of the fate that awaits them if they dissent from the regime. Earlier, or I suppose actually rather later, we will talk about how the people within this regime asked for their freedom to be taken away, or at least that's what Captain Beatty will claim, and we'll talk about that later. And while this is true, once this oppressive regime gets going, as we see here, it does everything it can to maintain itself. However this may be, a mistake has been made, and Mrs. Phelps is not taken out of her home. Montag, whose loyalty to his profession has already started to waver in light of his conversations with Clarice, now encounters the stalwart Mrs. Phelps, who dies a martyr-like death going down with her books. She says to Montag, quote, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust, shall never be put out. End quote. The quotation was said by the Anglican bishop Hugh Latimer in 1555 before being burned at the stake for not converting to Catholicism. The image of her, that is Mrs. Phelps's stunning courage, haunts Montag up until the point that it motivates him to find a teacher who can guide his next steps. With that, then, we turn to his next educator, uh, Faber. Faber is an academic who is forced out of work in light of the way that the regime now sees books. This tells us something important, namely that freedom vanished from this regime not so long ago. But the rulers have been very quick to rewrite history to make it seem as if things have always been such. Earlier in the book, we learn uh, that apparently Benjamin Franklin was allegedly the first firefighter. So this regime tries to make it seem as if their rule has always been, and in that sense, always will be. At any rate, Faber comes to light as a kind of antipode to Mrs. Phelps, whereas she resolutely faces up to a spectacular death by immolation. Faber painfully admits that he did not stand up for books back when it was still possible to do so. As Faber puts it, quote, Mr. Montag, you are looking at a coward. I saw, I saw the way things were going a long time back. I said nothing. I'm one of the innocents who could have spoken up and out when no one would listen to the guilty, but I did not speak and thus became guilty myself. Faber asks Montag, what it is that shook him up, and Montag answers that he realized that he wasn't happy. This recalls for us one of Clarice's initial frank and powerful questions that she asked Montag during their first meeting. In thinking through his unhappiness, Montag realized that books were absent from his life, and this spurred him to wonder if their return might be a requirement of happiness. Faber offers a somewhat astonishing or paradoxical response. It was astonishing to me 
in part because Fahrenheit 451 is a book that serves as a kind of beautiful memento to reading books. But, strikingly, Faber does much to point out the limitations of books. He says, quote, No, no, it's not books at all you're looking for. Take it where you can find it, in old phonograph records, old motion pictures, and in old friends. Look for it in nature, and look for it in yourself. The good writers touch life often. Despite being an academic, Faber can't help but see and emphasize that at bottom, the writer of the best kind of book, the book that has genuine quality, has understood something essential about either nature or oneself. In a sense, knowledge of nature, which we might loosely call the fixed limits governing what a being can undergo or how much it can change, and knowledge of ourselves, which is to say knowledge of that which perceives nature, is the standard by which we measure whether a book has genuine insight or not. To put it a different way, we might sometimes look at the books we have read as accomplishments or status symbols, but the point of reading is to learn how to live well. If reading isn't assisting your living well, you aren't doing it right, or you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Now, in accordance with something like this thought, Faber, seeing that he lacked the courage in the past to protect the things that he loved, has now prepared himself to assist a man of action. He put together a seashell radio that can go in Montag's ear so that Faber's more experienced mind can help guide Montag's more courageous body and soul. Faber attempts to temper Montag's zealous longing for action, the thinking being that, immediately lashing out at the first fireman he sees will only result in death. Faber continually tries to stress to Montag that he needs more patience. This, as it turns out, is utterly lost on Montag. In this way, Faber ends up being less of a guide for Montag than Clarice and Mrs. Phelps were. We do learn, however, that Montag and Faber had met at some point in the past, sometime before the timeline of the novel begins. It may be that Faber somehow planted seeds in Montag's mind that made him more receptive to the questions he received from Clarice, which in turn primed him to be horrified and moved at the death of Mrs. Phelps. All right, so let's turn to the final part of the lecture. What is the political teaching of the novel? And a subset of this question, or maybe something that goes along with it, is the question, is history cyclical or is history progressive? In this part, we will compare Captain Beatty's incredible speech about how things got to be this way uh, with a speech that we hear from Granger, a book-memorizing dissident living outside of the confines of the regime. At stake is whether Bradbury invites his readers to think of history as either cyclical or progressive. This is one point on which I think Bradbury is potentially confused. Or it could be the case that he's deliberately perplexing the reader. I would invite you to share your thoughts on this after I present my argument. Here is a small preface to my argument. Charles Kessler, the editor of the Claremont Review of Books, wrote a book called The Crisis of the Two Constitutions. Uh, the book more or less tries to compare what he takes to be the American founder's vision of the goals of political life with progressives' view of the goals of political life, and then he tries to think through a lot of contemporary issues. 
I think the book is pretty helpful, and I'm not going to talk about it for very long. I only want to look at his bare-bones initial skeletal summary of the progression of, or the, de the development of progressivism. So, in his initial summary of progressivism, he sees progressivism as coming in three phases. The first is the Woodrow Wilson slash New Freedom phase, in which you see a direct attack on the United States' founding principles. And, and there is a turn towards hoping for perpetual peace in international relations. In the second phase, the FDR slash New Deal phase, we see the welfare state, socioeconomic entitlement rights, which can be summed up in the phrase freedom from fear. And third, or the third phase, there is the LBJ Great Society phase, where the American way of life is attacked as oppressive and inauthentic. Obviously, this is massively oversimplified. Um, you know, 75 years of American history have uh, been turned into three sentences. So there's obviously much more that could be said and a lot more that could be said about the economic and various other conditions that led progressives to do what they did um, and say what they said. There's so much to say about this, but we don't have time. Um, I mentioned this at all in order to say that I wonder if Bradbury, through his character Beatty, is rejecting something like FDR's notion that Americans should hope to be free from fear, or what we would call phase two of progressivism. But that after this, at the end of the book, Bradbury seems to praise something similar to stage one progressivism. Or we could say this, he seems to pin his hopes on something like perpetual peace coming to be. I would consider Bradbury confused if he rejected one form of progressivism only, take up, only to take up a slightly earlier stage of it. But we might not necessarily be right to take Granger as his mouthpiece, in which case his political teaching is much more perplexing and difficult to discern. Now, here is a way to put what I think is at stake between these two views before we consider them. It seems to me that if you take up any of those waves of progressivism, you are tied to a view of human history that seems to presuppose that there are fundamental problems in political life that can be totally and completely solved. In other words, that it's possible to move towards some kind of utopia that overcomes all of the human, uh, well, not necessarily misery that comes before, but, but a view of political life that finds some sort of way that solves all of the problems that prevent us from having some kind of genuinely common good that is somehow equally beneficial to all of the members of a political community. And we might say this, that if it is possible to achieve some kind of genuinely best city along these lines that um, doesn't just mitigate the evils of political life, but overcomes them, turns them around, then it would be the case that we might not need to read old books. Um, the older books would no longer contain wisdom. They would no longer teach us about the essence of nature, the essence of political reality, the fundamental constraints that condition um, various alternatives or things like that. Rather, Plato would no longer need to be read. He truly would be a relic of the past 
if some kind of hopes for perpetual peace um, that sort of solved all of our problems came to be. In other words, Plato would become a relic, something to be read for fun, but not to be read with any great deal of urgency. You could say, without going too far into this, too far into this, that maybe a Platonic vision of human history would be much more cyclical, or something along those lines. That there are certain difficulties inherent or endemic to political life that make it so that even if or when the best regime comes to be uh, through chance or through prayer or things like that, that even it will succumb to some of the difficulties that inherit in any political community. I mean, you might even say something like this, is that the division of labor, even something like the division of labor, which is discussed in Plato's Republic um, at the very beginning of the book, the division of labor presupposes that there will be some kind of political or economic inequality. There are just going to be some jobs that are more important than others. There's going to be some jobs that will be highly necessary and very important in a certain sense, but of which um, almost anybody can do. And whether or not you find a way to equalize the money or something along those lines, how could one job not be more honorable than another at the end of the day? However this may be, any political community that employs something like the division of labor is going to necessarily have some kind of form of inequality within it. It seems to me that that is inescapable. It's going to generate tensions within the regime that will rankle some people. So one has to see the division of labor from the perspective of trade-offs or something along those lines and say, look, it provides many great blessings to any political community that employs it, but it necessarily also carries with it several evils of which you can't be blind to or have to be highly attentive to in order to retain amongst the citizens the view that there could be some kind of common good. So a platonic view of political life involves seeing permanent problems that may or may not have better or worse solutions or attempts to solve them, but each of which entails certain kinds of evils or trade-offs um, that attend any choice. But a progressive vision seems, as far as I can tell, to be the opposite of this kind of trade-off vision that the older books of the Western tradition might give to us, to speak broadly and perhaps too simply. But I just wanted to lay out some of what I see as at stake within the scope of this argument in Fahrenheit 451 between Captain Beatty's speech and the speech made by Granger at the end of the book. So with those prefatory marks in place, uh, let's take a look at Captain Beatty's speech and then Granger's speech. When we turn to Captain Beatty's speech, a speech that he makes to Montag, um, we, can, we can see that it counters a common impression that Fahrenheit 451 is meant to show a government that comes to dominate over a people um, or that sort of turns itself against them. Um, let's turn to Captain Beatty's incredible speech where he offers an account of how and why this regime came to be as it is. It is an account that shows that it was not the government reaching down to oppress the people, but rather a people that became so soft that the majority of them begged to have their freedom taken away from themselves. So, what causes a free society to lose its freedom? I think it's un... Well, as far as I can tell, undoubtedly, this speech that occurs, I think it's roughly pages 53 to 58 
um, in at least the 60th anniversary edition of Fahrenheit 451. This is the most politically relevant to our time, as far as I can tell. So, in this crucial passage, Officer, or rather Captain Beatty, offers Montag an account of how firefighters came to burn books, or as he puts it, become custodians of our peace of mind. He notes crucially that it was not a tyrannical or authoritarian government that came and took away the books. Rather, the people themselves spurned the books, and the government came to represent their perverted will. Beatty says that an increasing proliferation of minorities and their wish to monopolize popular culture, or at any rate, their deep fear of being denigrated or lowered within popular culture, destroys the possibility of any kind of elevated popular culture. To quote the text, he says, dog lover, quote, the dog lovers, the cat lovers, doctors, lawyers, merchants, chiefs, Mormons, Baptists, Unitarians, second-generation Chinese, Swedes, Italians, Germans, Texas Brooklynites, Irishmen, people from Oregon or Mexico, end quote all resented not seeing themselves properly represented in books. We break Beattie's comment, we, or sorry, we can break Beattie's comment into fairly clear categories. The different groups vying to have themselves heard at the expense of others include those with superficial tastes, i.e. dog versus cat lovers, uh, religions, of which several are mentioned, professions, ethnicity, and regional differences, and that all these demand not to have their toes stepped on in books. This leads to the watering down of books. Beattie also reports that schools increasingly lowered their standards, and they did so in order to accommodate their worst students. Let me read you a longer, well, not that long of a passage, but let's take a look um, at this part of the speech. Here is Captain Beatty. He says, You always dread the unfamiliar. Surely you remember the boy in your own school class who was exceptionally bright, did most of the reciting and answering, while the other sat like so many leaden idols, hating him. And wasn't it this bright boy you selected for beatings and tortures after hours? Of course it was. We must all be alike. Not everyone born free and equal, as the Constitution says, but everyone made equal. Each man the image of every other, then all are happy. For there are no mountains to make them cower, to judge themselves against. So, a book is a loaded gun in the house next door. Burn it. Take the shot from the weapon. Breach man's mind. Who knows who might be the target of the next or who who knows who might be the target of the well-read man? I won't stomach them for a minute. And so when houses were finally fireproofed completely all over the world, you were correct in your assumption the other night. There was no longer need of firemen for the old purposes. They were given the new job as custodians of peace of mind. The focus of our understandable, understandable and rightful dread of being inferior official censors, judges, and executors. That's you, Montag, and that's me. 
Wow, I find that to be one of the most incredible, amazing passages in a book that's, you know, full of helpful, insightful, and illuminating things. But but in the passage, Beattie admits, he admits that inequality seems almost to be a fundamental fact of nature. Beattie taps into a deep fear that many human beings have. It doesn't really matter whether you're left-wing left wing or right-wing or whatever. Human beings oftentimes don't enjoy seeing somebody do better than them at something that they'd like to be at, be good at consistently. BD taps into this wellspring of disappointment that so many experience and offers the possibility that one would no longer have to feel the fear of being inferior to others, that they could be free from this fear, a fear that afflicts so many. And in addition to what I have quoted, BD more than once over the course of Fahrenheit 451 brings out what you might say is or at least appears to be a problem, is that despite the fact that there are so many books that are alleged to be great or helpful or interesting, so many of them disagree with each other. So Beattie brings out the problem that there seems to be no stable standard that we can appeal to, to adjudicate between these different accounts um, that we find in the great conversation. We don't have time here to deal with the full weight of Beattie's argument. Um, and hopefully we can take that up another time, or perhaps um, if there's some kind of seminar or something like that after this, we could address it. But suffice it, suffice it to say that it's precisely because there are different accounts of the way that human beings should live, which gives us any incentive at all to search for the best or proper account. Just because there's many accounts doesn't mean that we have to wallow in despair and thinking that, there's no genuinely best account to find, but it does entail or mean that we do have to search for it. Now, we also have a little bit of help interpreting this speech from the author himself in an interview that he gives much later um, after the book comes out, an interview that you can find in the back of the 60th anniversary edition, an interview in which Bradbury actually repeats many of the things that he puts into BD's mouth in his own voice as things that he thinks are true, but pernicious or bad. That is to say, Bradbury sees that what he put in BD's speech is something that's becoming more and more, or something that's in play in American or Western life in a bigger way, um, even more than when he originally wrote it, which is to say we can say for sure, at least as far as that interview is concerned, that Bradbury thinks that what Beattie's saying is a powerful account, but that it's something that we should deeply fear, or that anybody who thinks like Beattie thinks is a very dangerous person and should not be in control of political life if one could help it. So with that said, we can say then that if Beattie represents something like FDR's freedom from fear or the wish to be free from fear, that according to the schematic that we got from Kessler, Bradbury rejects this second phase of progressivism. But let's now turn to the final sort of speech in the book, which is Granger's speech, which seems, as far as I can tell, to at least imitate or uh, praise something like Wilson's Woodrow Wilson's hope for a world of perpetual peace. So um, after 
Montag ends up having to go to his own house to burn it because, you know, his own wife reported him for having books at home. Uh, after burning his own belongings, he comes outside and he's sort of uh, like a cornered animal or something along those lines. It ends up destroying Beatty with a fire hose. And he wonders if Beatty wished for that to happen. Beatty's a kind of tortured soul in a way. He knows a lot about books, but nonetheless spends most of his time burning them or destroying them. However this may be, Montag goes on the run. He destroys a mechanical hound, but there's another mechanical hound that begins to track him down. He makes his way out of the city um, with a little bit of help from his friend Faber, or at least some messages from Faber about the fact that there are book-memorizing dissidents who live uh, by the railroad tracks, which are no longer used. And so he's on the run. Now, when he gets there, he meets... I don't. It may not be the head of the dissidents. It may only just be a person who um, likes to make himself a spokesperson to new people who come. But let's turn to a nice juicy quotation from uh, when this man Granger talks. Granger says, quote, There was a silly damn bird called a phoenix back before Christ. Every few hundred years he built a pyre and burned himself up. He must have been first cousin to man. But every time he burnt himself up, he sprang out of the ashes. He got himself born all over again. And it looks like we're doing the same thing over and over, but we've got one damn thing the phoenix never had. We know the damn silly things we just did. We know all the damn silly things we've done for a thousand years. And as long as we know that and always have it around where we can see it, someday we'll stop making the goddamn funeral pyres and jumping in the middle of them. We pick up a few more people every time that remember every generation. So here we see Granger bring out the sort of stakes that I mentioned at the beginning of this section. Granger more or less says, up until now, there has been a cyclical view of history where human beings made the same mistakes over and over again. But he assists, insists, or asserts that somehow human beings pick up a few more people every time between each dark age. How that works, I don't really know. But he seems to think that it's possible that some kind of enlightenment could take hold of the human mind such that earlier mistakes can be corrected. But isn't it the case that Granger's view presupposes that there aren't inherent tensions in political life that don't admit of a very easy solution? He seems to presuppose that Whatever mistakes have led to human misery or wars or things along those lines are unforced errors that could be fixed with enough thought as opposed to problems built into the structure of human life that are coeval with our nature or something like that. In other words, he must think that, yeah, again, these are unforced errors that admit of a correction. So we see a cyclical view of history on one hand versus a progressive view of history on the other. As Granger says, we'll build the biggest grave of all time and shove war in and cover it up. So he, like Wilson, seems to hope for a world without war. And I don't know, this may have to be a war without nations, but we don't really know. So then we are led to wonder. In light of the fact that it seems that Bradbury is critical of Captain Beatty's view, where he thinks that that's a bad version of progressivism, did Bradbury's 
is his critical view of BD speech something that should prepare us to doubt that he holds Granger to be an admirable model? Or is it the case that Bradbury is a fan of progressivism, as shown in Fahrenheit 451, but just wants to go back one step or something along those lines? Or is he preparing us to reject it altogether in favor of some sort of platonic or earlier view or something along those lines? It's not entirely clear to me. We could note that Montag echoes this line about mistakes that Granger mentions earlier when he talked about the cave. So when we talked about the cave earlier, I was mostly laudatory of Bradbury in a certain sense for choosing such a profound and important and eternal image of education. But even in that earlier passage that we looked at, um, Montag seemed to indicate that getting out of the cave might stop humanity from making mistakes and not just the philosopher who gets out of the cave or something along those lines. So it may be that Bradbury fosters some kind of utopian hopes or something along those lines. But I would need to read more Bradbury in order to figure this out um, and see what he's up to. Thus, I would welcome any pushback or just helpful observations or arguments about where you think the argument of this book is ultimately headed. And I really look forward to hearing those. So thanks for spending your time uh, with Montana Classical College, and I wish you uh, the best. Thanks.